wanted to uh, begin <clears throat> this morning by telling you about a haircut I remember getting back in the sixth grade. I know that's kind of random, but the, the reason that I can, uh, can remember this specific haircut is, is just because it was, is, it was a different look for me uh, than, I, than I had had before. So in the sixth grade, I got my uh, very first short buzz cut. Now, I know it's nothing too crazy or out of the ordinary, but for me, I had not had that kind of haircut before, so it was, uh, it was new. Um, I, I do remember it kind of being a big deal at home that night. Remember my parents, remember my sister drawing attention to it. Uh, I, I can remember that you know, like that extra kind of boost of confidence you get when you got that new haircut or new clothes or, you know, something like that. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I remember kind of having that feeling and, and that confidence must have uh, carried over uh, because I also remember something that happened at school the next day. Um, I, I remember going to, uh, to homeroom and uh, getting some more compliments about my new haircut. I remember my teacher uh, complimenting me on it. Um, but the thing that I really remember from that experience was something that kind of caught me off guard about the whole situation. So with my newfound uh, confidence from my haircut, I, I apparently thought I was a bit invincible when it came to the rules, the normal rules of the classroom, and, and I did something that I shouldn't have done. And for the life of me, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know I broke a classroom rule. And what I remember, what really sticks in my mind is that even though I had this awesome new haircut, my teacher called me out on it. Like, I got in trouble, and I, I, I just remember thinking, like, what just happened? Doesn't she know I have this new haircut? Like, why, why am I being called out right now? Shouldn't she pick on somebody that doesn't have as cool of a haircut? Like, wh I, I just remember that. I, I, for some reason, I falsely assumed that, that something about myself allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do without any kind of repercussion as a result of that. So... That kind of attitude, the reason I bring that story up, is, is that kind of attitude is the essence of what God addresses in, in the book of Isaiah, specifically chapters 56 through 59 that we'll look at this morning. Uh, it, it wasn't a new haircut that led God's people to being a bit prideful. They found other reasons. There were other reasons to assume that uh, they were free to live however they wanted to live and, and still find favor with God. So if you remember last week, last week we discussed that incredible passage where the suffering servant was prophesied to, to come and pay the penalty for sinful men and women. Uh, he would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, uh, he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, uh, he would die so that we would be made, we could be made righteous. And so as a result of that sacrifice, we can participate in, uh, in a covenant of peace, an eternal covenant of peace and joy and comfort. The problem was that God's people at that time assumed that they were automatically included in that covenant simply because of who they were. Simply because of who they were. Now, they didn't have some nifty haircut, but they were God's chosen people. God's chosen people. 
At one time, God's temple was among them. And in the future, that would be true once again. It had been prophesied. They, they thought that because of those things, they were separated from everyone else uh, on earth. They acted like they were above everyone else. They acted like they could do whatever they wanted and still reap the benefits of being God's chosen people. Well, we're going to find out today that that just wasn't the case. That's what God addressed in these chapters. God's plan was never to choose a specific people for himself and then reject everyone else for the rest of eternity. That was never God's plan. His plan was to choose a people for himself so that they could shine a light before the world in order to draw people toward God. That was his plan. The, the line for inclusion and exclusion in God's kingdom would end up having nothing to do with Jewish or Gentile heritage. Instead, it, had, it, it would have everything to do with, with humbly accepting or pridefully rejecting God himself. And that's what he goes on to talk about. So chapters 56 through 58, the first three that we'll look at this morning, are all about showing this distinction between those who are humble and those who pridefully reject God. Those who humble themselves before God, those who pridefully reject God. So look with me at chapter 56. I'd encourage you to open to Isaiah 56. In this chapter, the humble are addressed first, and then God gets to the prideful. So I'll read in chapter 56. I'm going to start in verse 3. God says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So that this message was a rebuke to any Jew who thought that there was a limit on who could come to God. God specifically addressed two groups of people who were, uh, who were commonly excluded by God's people, the foreigner and the eunuch. He, he addressed those two specific ones. The foreigner was obviously someone who wasn't a Jew. They weren't a Jew. They, they were not of a bloodline that could trace their ancestry all the way back to Abraham himself, the one called by God. But that didn't matter. God says that, that doesn't matter. It's not a person's family heritage that allows them to come to God. <clears throat> Instead, it is, it is the person who humbly submitted himself to God, Jew or Gentile person who would humbly submit themselves to God. And it would be seen in this context by holding fast to the covenant, keeping the Lord's Sabbaths. And if that wasn't shocking enough, God also told that there was room for the eunuch 
within his people. And, and without getting too graphic, it, it, it's enough to know that, that a eunuch was unable to physically participate in the important mark of circumcision that set God's people apart from the other nations. So because of this reality, the Jews didn't see how a eunuch could possibly be part of God's people. Well, God, in this section, assured the eunuch, who again kept his Sabbaths, who held fast to his covenant, that he would indeed be included. He would be given a name that was better than, than many sons and daughters. All that to say, it is those who humble themselves before God, those who humble themselves before God, whom he welcomes with open arms. That's what he's proclaiming here. On the contrary, listen to what God says about the prideful Israelite leaders. This is chapter 56, verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs, they cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The leaders of God's people believed that because of who they were, they would be just fine. That's what they believed. They didn't think they had any reason to be on the lookout for trouble of any kind. But the truth was, God said, they were like shepherds without understanding. And so in their pride, they, they thought they could act selfishly and, and for their own gain while God would just look the other way. They, they were drunk on wine. They assumed that their standing before God was secure because of their heritage. That's what they assumed. God warned, however, that the beasts of the field had come to devour them. Their position as, as Jewish leaders was no guarantee that they would be included in God's new eternal covenant that would be instituted. So we see this distinction here between those who humble themselves before God, those who pridefully reject God. If we go into chapter 57, we get another comparison of the humble and the prideful. This time, the prideful are addressed first. Listen to chapter 57, uh, starting in verse 3. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering, you have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you've set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. In this passage, God is drawing attention to the prideful idol worship of, of, uh, in which God's people were taking part. And so God was clear. He was clear throughout history in his commands to his people that they were not to worship idols. But that didn't stop them. It didn't stop the people from ascending every high hill in order to participate in the, the pagan sacrifices that took place there. 
Um, child sacrifice is mentioned as, as part of the idol worship. Religious prostitution is alluded to as part of the idol worship. In their pride, God's people thought that they could worship in any and every way that they desired. That's how they were acting. And they, even, they were even said to be mocking God and sticking out their tongue at him. I mean, what a picture of boldness and of pride that, that is being presented to his people. And yet, then God goes on and he tells them in, uh, he tells them in verse 13 that when they cry out, it's going to have to be their idols that come to answer them. If that's who they're worshiping and they're going to cry out, then it's going to have to be the idols. They might be worshiping something regularly, but they have no reason to assume that deliverance from God will come based upon their worship of idols at all these high places. On the contrary, those who humble themselves before God on high will be delivered. Look at chapter 57, verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It, it's no coincidence that the prideful Israelites went to the tops of hills and mountains in order to engage in idol worship. In a sense, they were attempting to lift themselves up through that worship. And it's kind of, you remember the story of Babel back in Genesis. It's kind of like that story where the people built a high tower in order to elevate themselves and lift themselves up. But even with that tower, God has to come down to them, come down from his throne and sees what's going on. Well, verse 15 here reminds us that it is God himself who is high and lifted up. He is the one who sits on high and the humble recognize that God is on high. And they take a lowly, contrite position of worship before him. It's the humble and the contrite in spirit with whom God chooses to dwell. I mean, this is such a countercultural way of thinking, isn't it? I mean, is it not the, the famous and the powerful and the rich that our culture adores and wants to dwell with and be connected to? Well, time and time again throughout the Bible, we are told that God does not function in that way. He doesn't. When, when choosing a king, for example, God didn't look at David's outward appearance, but we're told he looked at his heart. When, uh, when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't, he didn't look at the temple or the synagogues, but he instead went to fishermen at the lake, tax collectors in their booths. You see this example, God does not choose to dwell among those who are high and lofty in the world's eyes. Rather, it's among those who humble themselves before him. That's who he dwells with. That's who his people are. And then in chapter 58, again, one more time, pride and humility are addressed. And, and again, God speaks to the prideful first. Look at chapter 58, verse one. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. 
They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you seen it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day and a day acceptable to the Lord? So we've already seen that the, the, the proud have attempted to rely on their family heritage. They've, they've attempted to rely uh, on their own exaltedness, their own loftiness, lifting themselves up. Here we see them relying on their outward actions. Uh, they, they audibly call out to God and they fast before him. They think they're fasting before God. And to the untrained eye, it may have seemed like they were humble before God and fasting before God. He says, you know, you, you, you bow down, you bow your head like a reed, you spread sackcloth and ashes. But again, just like I mentioned earlier in regards to King David and others, God, God looks upon a person's heart. And so when the proud questioned why God was not responding to their acts of piety, uh, he stated that their outward fasting was accompanied by oppression and quarreling and violence. They, they were not truly humbling themselves before God. It might have looked like it on the outside, but God says you're not. You're not. Rather, they were relying upon their own pious actions to secure God's favor. In comparison, again, looking at the humble, we see that God, what God desires is for those who are truly humble, not just who act like it piously, but who truly are humble, to serve the lowly, serve the afflicted. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 58. Verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. So even your gloom will be bright, he's saying. That, that reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 when he talked about separating the sheep and the goats. Right? The sheep are those who will enter God's kingdom, and they, they show their citizenship in that kingdom by how they treated the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned during their life. On the contrary, the goats are those who will not enter God's kingdom, and they show their lack of citizenship in that kingdom, again, by their refusal to care for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned during their life. 
And Jesus wasn't saying that one must do those things in order to earn salvation. And that's not what God is saying here in Isaiah 58 either. Rather, simply fasting on the outside and crying out to God, I mean, that, 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 even that can be done uh, from, from an attitude of pride, from a position of pride. So you can do all of those other acts, caring for the poor, visiting someone in prison. You can do that out of pride too. It's the humble. It's those who've humbled themselves before God. Those who've accepted Jesus through their humility. They will show their citizenship in his kingdom by then humbly serving those around them. It won't just be an outward action. It will be an inner heart change as well. The, the original audience of these words was God's people living in captivity in Babylon. That's the original audience. But it shouldn't stop us from reading these words and taking a good look within ourselves. I mean, the bottom line in all of this is that our pride in our heritage or in our loftiness or, or, or in our outward actions might be leading us to a date with God's judgment upon sin. It very well might. The problem is that none of us are immune to pride. We're not immune to pride. The, the pride is not some rare phenomenon that only affects one or two out of every thousand people. It's one out of one. Pride affects one person out of one. Uh, and in Isaiah chapter 59, as we look at this last chapter, Isaiah makes that case. And listen to what he says, verse 1 of chapter 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly, they rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. I mean, that's a dire picture, and we could continue on there, but I think we get the point. That, that is a dire picture that Isaiah paints, and yet it's an honest picture that we have to be confronted with. We have to be. Our sins do separate us from God, as Isaiah says there. Our iniquities do, uh, our sins do hide his face from us, as he states. And you know, in case we're tempted to think that this only applies to some people, or it only applies to certain people, or maybe, maybe someone like Isaiah himself might be excluded from being described that way. Listen to how the tone shifts in verse 9 of chapter 59. So what was you and your and they and theirs shifts to we and to us. Listen to verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. 
For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, seeking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. And we read Paul's description of it earlier from Romans chapter 3, where he says, none is righteous. No, not one. And it's not just Isaiah, it's not just Paul who see the hopelessness of mankind's situation. God gives us his perspective as well in this chapter. Look at one more passage here in chapter 59, verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So God looked and he saw the situation. He could find no one who could intercede for man in that situation. There wasn't anyone. In essence, we're all in the middle of the ocean without a lifeboat, drowning, and we can't save one another because we're all drowning ourselves. That's the situation that God looked upon mankind. That's what he saw. It's a significant problem in which mankind finds itself. It's a significant problem in which you and I find ourselves as well. But there is hope. I stopped in the middle of verse 16 there because it shifts to talking about hope in the second part of that verse. So look with me, halfway through verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I mean, that is a summary of Jesus' work on the cross. It is. With his own arm, God brought about salvation. We were drowning. We couldn't save ourselves, but he provided that salvation. His own arm brought it about. He stepped into the hopeless situation and provided reason for hope. He, he paved the way for those who would humble themselves before God and find salvation and find deliverance from the coming judgment. And, and that, that call to humble, it, it, it's exactly what we're called to do in verse 20, chapter 59. Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So rather than pridefully rejecting God and attempting to find our own way, um, which is only going to end up in judgment upon sin, uh, we ought to humble ourselves before God and turn, repent of our transgressions. And it's humbling. I mean, that is a humbling thing to do. It is humbling to admit before God, admit before one another that we've sinned. But that is the path that leads to salvation. That is what we are called to do. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We see it all over in these chapters. This morning, we have the awesome privilege of watching three individuals publicly express in an outward way that they have chosen to humble themselves before God. 
So each one of these three individuals this morning are included in Paul's remarks that none are righteous. Um, Each of these three have come to the understanding that they cannot secure their own salvation. And so each of these three have come to to the point in their lives where they have, they've humbled themselves before God. They've repented of their sin. They've trusted him for their salvation. They've, they've trusted God's own arm, as we read about here, his arm providing salvation. So, so the baptisms that, that we'll witness together this morning, this doesn't confer salvation on anyone. We're not saved because we are baptized. If that were so, there would be something that we could do to earn our salvation. But because only God's arm can secure salvation, as we've noted this morning, then what will take place this morning is a declaration of that reality that has already taken place, that God has provided that salvation. Jesus humbled himself to the point of dying upon the cross for my sins, for your sins. Then after his death, he rose again three days later defeated death, and he, he walked in newness of life. So through baptism, these, these three individuals are proclaiming that their, their old self has been put to death and that they have been raised to newness of life in Jesus. So going under the water is the picture of that old being gone. Coming up out of the water is that picture of the fact that the new has now come. So I'm excited. I'm excited that we get to rejoice together. I'm excited for you to hear more of their individual stories because they'll share that with you this morning um, before each one are baptized. We get to rejoice together today. We can rejoice every day. We should rejoice every day in the fact that God's arm has provided salvation, Uh, but we get to do it in a special way this morning. We rejoice that God has redeemed these three daughters of his in addition to the rest of us here who have humbled ourselves before him. Let me pray for us before we do that. God, I I give you praise this morning. Um, Isaiah paints a clear picture of of the the sin in which we all find ourselves. But we're so thankful that you, through your strong arm, you've provided salvation. What a blessing. And we know that pridefully we do not attain that. It's quite clear that it's only as we humble ourselves before you, as we accept you for who you are, that we find salvation and that we find deliverance in you. God, I thank you for each one here that has done that this morning. I thank you for these, these three who will be baptized and publicly declare that they've humbled themselves before you, that they are trusting in you for their salvation and deliverance. God, for those of us who've been baptized before, may may this morning take us back to that day in our own lives. Maybe not just the day we were baptized, but the day that we trusted in you and humbled ourselves before you, the day that our old was gone and that our new has come. You are worthy of our praise. We thank you that you rescued us when there was no other option that we had. And so, God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're uh, going to sing a song and then have offering, and then we'll go ahead and uh, do the baptisms after that.